Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I feel like this is an important message going into 2022, consequent to a prophecy that one of, uh, one of the brothers had here at, at service. And, and I just said to the Lord while I was driving in this evening, because it's kind of a surprise, I was saying... Lord, please keep people within range of the voice of what I believe you have to say to us as a church on this uh, uh, January morning. So, uh, this morning I want to probe a passage uh, from a book of the Bible that I've really not spoken of a lot at NC4. It comes from the first epistle of the Apostle John. It's written from John who's in Ephesus uh, after Paul has been martyred. When the church at when I'm sorry when the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed immediately previous to that, uh, according to the prophecies that Jesus gave to the disciples, uh, most of the churches left Israel and went to Pella in Jordan. But a number of the Christians went out into the Mediterranean, and John ends up in Ephesus, where he's there with the mother of Mary. Paul is martyred, and of course Paul established the church at Ephesus. So the church is in somewhat disarray. There are a number of other churches in the Mediterranean and throughout that area. And the church is experiencing this measure of disunity and disillusionment. And, and this letter is not merely written to one specific church. It's one singular church, but to the church at large. And, and that's the reason that his epistles are called Catholic epistles. because uh, Not because it's uh, a Roman Catholic Epistle, but rather the word Catholic in Greek mean katalikos means universal or everywhere. And so this is these these epistles are are letters to the church everywhere. And it's, this is what's on John's heart late in his life. He's probably the last apostle of the Lamb, the last of the twelve apostles uh, that are alive, and all the rest were martyred. John was not martyred, but but he experienced uh, the equivalent of that a number of times and kept his faith. So it's because these uh, epistles are preached to the church universal that the word Catholic is applied to them. It's important to know, and this is really important, that this is a fatherly letter and is written by, uh, by an individual who has uh, lived for the church, has suffered for the church, has seen the works of Christ, has walked with Christ, and late in his life, this is what he's concerned with. It's not uh, end times, it's not uh, the defeat of the enemy in, in, in an overt and revelation sense. It's, it's this gritty kind of letter that's so hard to live up to. Uh, a number of months ago at a pulpit team meeting, uh, uh, there was a, a suggestion that we should preach from, from one of the Catholic epistles. And, and I said, you know what? You don't hear many Sunday morning sermons from 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Peter, uh, Jude. I mean, there's not a lot. And, and I thought, I wonder why that is. I was musing, and Pastor Rex said, it's because nobody can live up to them. And I thought, yeah, it's probably true. They're such challenging but simple epistles. Now, I normally kind of don't focus messages as a response to a prophetic word. But uh, Paul Stewart, one of our brothers in the McCunji campus, submitted a prophecy for 2022 
that carried, uh, for me, a strong ring of truth to it. And uh, uh, I'm not going to read the entire prophecy. If you want the entire prophecy, you can uh, get in touch with Paul. Uh, he's in the, the church directory. Uh, I'm just going to use a portion because it, it's, a, it's a, a, a bit of a complex prophecy, but it's an important one. But, so you can contact Paul if you want the complete word. But I'm just going to read this portion that I've kind of edited and kind of focused in on it. And it, it hinges on Proverbs 5, verses 21 and 22. You don't have to turn there because it's being quoted here. For God sees everything you do, and his eyes are wide open as he observes every habit that you have. Beware that your sins don't overtake you and that the scars of your own conscience don't become ropes that tie you up. The prophecy goes on to say this. The year 2022 is a year to clean up our act. It will be a year where we need to meditate on that proverb and other scriptures like it. God sees everything we do and knows our motivation for all the places we are going and all the plans that we make. It will be a year where our hidden sins will start to catch up to us if we don't deal with them. We're going to talk about dealing with them, and that's not as hard as we think. The Lord made it very clear to me, Paul says, that this was not a legalistic call. This isn't a matter of legalism, but one of a father who just misses his kids. A father who misses his children. Wow. He does not want to see his kids hurt, his children hurt, because, because then his children are missing the best that he has for them. So this is a call of love. It's not a call of condemnation. Are there cycles that we need to break in any of our lives this year? Well, I don't know about you, but I have a few cycles that could be broken uh, at any given time, and I've been meditating on what Paul said. Now, as I said, this seemed to ring like true to me when, when it was submitted to me. So we're going to take a look at a passage that is in so very many ways a response to that very prophecy. It's 1 John, and 1 John is God's fatherly cry to the church at large to clean its act up. In the opening verses of the epistle, the apostle John establishes his authority uh, to write what he needs to say. He says, look, church, I have seen and touched with my own hands the things concerning this word of life, this Jesus. John is saying, I myself am an apostolic witness to the, the very life of Jesus. And as I noted before, he may, he may have been uh, one of the last ones alive when he was doing this writing. So it's really important that we realize that John is writing to Christians. It's easy to go to these epistles and think, wow, these, these are challenging epistles. This, he must be writing to marginal Christians. He's writing to the active church of the first century. And his concern is the whole problem of ongoing sin in the lives of Christians. Uh, last year here at NC4, I don't know if uh, all of you remember it, but <clears throat> we had quite a dramatic string of words that kind of came from nowhere on the life of Josephat. And uh, the idea that, that, that came from that, that whole string of prophecies and reading the word was this idea that, that it's easy to make peace with your enemies. And uh, some of us have made peace with a lot of enemies over the course of the year because it's just so tough to deal with stuff in our lives. 
And I believe this is a continuation of that challenge that God is giving in C4, where he's saying, look, now is the time to no longer make peace with those enemies, but to move forward in the challenges of Christian life. Now, God challenged us then through the life of Jehoshaphat. I believe he's challenging us now with this parallel piece of Scripture. Dealing with our habits is always a challenge, especially if we've come to the point where we consider them to be little sins. Anybody have any little sins? You know, or maybe there are sins that are just like easy to hide. Uh, they're not big. You know, we're not robbing convenience stores. You know, we're not kleptomaniacs. It's not that kind of stuff. We don't deal with them because it's just inconvenient to do so. And to continue to tolerate them in our lives is something that we just, we, we don't have the energy to deal with them, so we tolerate them in our lives. But when that happens, John is saying they become lies. And we say things like, well, well I know it's wrong, but God understands. And John's epistle is to say, no, God doesn't really understand. He just has mercy. Um, uh, or the other thing we say is, well, this habit's really harmless. You know? Or we say things like, I don't have the energy or the time. This is mine. I don't have the energy or the time to deal with this. I've tried before and it's just too hard. Okay, now maybe this is only me. You know, maybe, maybe it's not you guys out there who are listening. But I've entitled this message, Inconvenient Truth and Convenient Lies. And it is the focus of the prophecy that we heard this morning. And it's exactly the focus of John's uh, fatherly, very fatherly loving letter to the church. And so here's the first kind of point that I want to make about that. If we ignore the truth long enough, we begin, begin to live, uh, believe, excuse me, I'll say it again. If we ignore the truth long enough, we begin to believe the lie. When the lie becomes the truth, that's what deception is. Uh, are you with me on this? Track with me on this. And, and, you know, George Costanza says to Seinfeld, you know, if you believe it, it's not a lie. <laughs> and uh, uh, that seems to be the mantra of, uh, of a dysfunctional world, but it seeps into the church today. Uh, and by the way, when it becomes a functional, when, you're, when, you're, when a lie is a functional truth, uh, you, you, can, you begin to, to defend it and claim it. Okay? Now, the really good news is that we believe that this year offers us, this is what God seems to be saying. There's a special dispensation to deal with a few of these things. Like, I'm, I'm up for that. You know? uh, there's a special dispensation of grace that we can move in the light. So, John focuses in this passage that I'm going to read on light, on forgiveness, on love, as opposed to darkness and sin and isolation. John's message in these verses begins with a declaration, a, a proposition, if you will, and then he follows it with six conditions, six big ifs. Um, for those of you who know grammar, uh, there are subjunctives all over the place in this passage. It means there are conditions everywhere. Another thing that I love, watch this, is that John always uses the plural we, when he challenges the church, which is kind of cool because he's including himself in speaking a challenge to the church. He says, if I challenge you, I'm challenging myself in the same way because this is what God is saying. So this passage that I'm going to read 
is full of ifs. Ifs. I want you with me to watch all of the ifs. And we're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 5. And I'm going to do my usual running commentary. Uh, all right, so uh, 1, John, <clears throat> 1 John 1, uh, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and proclaim to you, John says to the church, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's the proposition. That's the declaration. Now, there are two ama amazing statements in this. One is that God is light, and we're going to unpack that in a second. Uh, but the other is that in him is no darkness. See, John is claiming that God is incapable of being wrong or doing anything wrong. And so on that basis, on that basis, John launches into this kind of salvo of ifs. Uh, he says, if, verse 6, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Ouch. The Greek word here is to do the truth. It, it says practice, but the word means to do. Most, most of us in Western culture believe truth is something we believe. And there's a portion of truth to that. But biblically, truth doesn't matter. It's what you do more than what you believe. So the Greek word here is to do the truth. Um, in Christ, truth is something that is performed. All right? Um, okay. Uh, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What's really interesting about that, I'll read it again, verse 7. If we walk in the light, he is in the light, we have fellowship. I would have thought John would have written, we have fellowship with God. But he says this, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. It's kind of amazing that John doesn't say, we have fellowship with God. For John, to be out of fellowship with your community of believers, to be out of sorts with each other, to be out of church, is to say that we have no fellowship with God. Well, that's a pretty radical statement. As a matter of fact, it flies in the face of a whole entourage of Christianity across the landscape because there are churchless sheep everywhere these days. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if, see all the ifs here? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. So, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you, you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Well, the word there is paraclete. Someone who stands with us, who comes alongside us. Jesus, the righteous one. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and uh, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Reformed uh, theologians take note. Sins of the whole world. There goes the uh, limited atonement right there. Verse 2. Uh, he is the propitiation. How many can say propitiation ten times fast? <laughs> I think this is only two places in the whole scripture that word propitiation is used. What it means is it's, a propitiation is a sacrifice that eradicates guilt 
and shame. And that's pretty cool. Jesus is our propitiation. Verse 3, And this we know, uh, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So when we say that we know the Lord, there needs to be a moral proof in our lives. Right? Um, verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the very same way in which Jesus walked. I would say that's a fairly challenging uh, piece of scripture. Would you not? Okay. Everyone here is squirming in their seats. and you know. <laughs> I mean, Pastor Rex was right. Who can live up to this? But there, there, there is nevertheless the truth that we need to begin to discover a portion of it to make us begin to walk in it the way John wanted the church to walk all the way back in the first century. So let's unpack this a little bit. Well, the first thing that John has to say here is that God is light. And that's a favorite uh, motif of, of the Apostle John. It's all through the Gospel of John. Two weeks, we're going to begin a long series on the, on the, on the Gospel of John. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, uh, I think, really challenging, but, but incredibly encouraging. Two weeks, we're starting that. This is kind of a transitional message, but God is speaking through this thing. So the first thing that John has to say is that God is light. Well, why light? Well, without light, there's no life. Uh, without light, there's no sight. Without light, there's no direction. Without light, there's no color. Without life, there's no enjoyment. No, there's no identity, no relationship. You can't see the other. So John is saying that without being in God, there is no real life. There is no real sight, no direction, no color, no joy, no enjoyment, no identity, no relationship. And, and really, all of these things pertain to our lives, that God is light. In John 1, uh, chapter 4, uh, John declares this, In him was life, and that life is the light of all humankind. It's our light. So I don't think most of us would disagree with that. Okay, it sounds good because he's talking about Jesus. But if that's the case, boy, this is my pastoral question. Why then... Do so many of us, so many Christians live as if it's not true? What is John who's addressing Christians, addressing the church, what does John have to throw out? All those big ifs that make, made us squirm in our seats. Uh, John states that if we pretend that we're okay in God while we walk outside of his light, we become a lie. And we lie especially to ourselves, and of course, that's deception. Um, John is talking about the problem, the perennial problem of ongoing sin in Christians' lives, which exist in the church, and usually fragment the church and disunify the church, because sin has consequences that we pretend that it doesn't have. One of the reasons that it's easy to do, uh, uh, to, to walk outside the light and claim you're in the light, is that we live in a culture where uh, uh, morality is a fluid and moving standard, where, where uh, everybody gets to say what's right and wrong apart from any objective measure. Are you there? And so we, we come up, any one of us here uh, 
right now, we can come up with some consensus somewhere, whether it's in media or friends or at a party, or where, we can come up with some consensus to almost justify anything that we want to do. It can be found, you know. Um, I think of woke culture. I mean, I tend not to get political in the pulpit, although I don't think, I think this is beyond political. It's just, you know, the measure of morality is if, you know, what's wrong is if you make someone feel bad, and what's right is if you make someone feel good. Really? You know, where is that in the scriptures? Or, or I, I heard a PBS article, uh, it was, a, it was a, a, a radio article not terribly long ago, where the individual who was, who was, who was uh, reading the article that she had written was essentially justifying the looting of stores as a matter of social justice for the individuals who were forced to loot the stores. And I'm thinking, what a topsy-turvy world we live in. This was serious, and it was on PBS of all places. Okay? And so, so sin and morality in the culture that we live in are, are measured almost completely subjectively right now. I mean, we can, it's, sin is what my opinion sin is. Right and wrong is what my opinion right and wrong is. And uh, there's a movie, uh, a movie on Netflix right now, and I, I hesitate to, to tell movies because I can't remember if there's anything graphic in it. I don't think there is. It's called Don't Look Up. And uh, it's a movie about an asteroid that's going to smack the earth and destroy. It's an ext extinction, extinction event. It's Saturday night and I'm tired. Anyway, it's an extinction event. Say that ten times fast. And, and, uh, and so the, this uh, PhD candidate uh, and, and uh, this, this astrophysicist go to the president go everywhere to try and tell people, hey, like, you know, we all got six months to live unless we do something really radical. But nobody believes them. Because, because what's true is essentially what you believe is true or what you think is true. And the, 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 the gravity of the situation escapes everyone until, of course, the inevitable happens. I tend to like dark comedies. I like Dr. Strangelove. I loved Peter Sellers being there. This is a dark comedy. But it's, when I was watching it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, there's so much here that's true. You know, the way the media, the way politics, the way everyone uh, reacts and interacts with what they believe is truth and what's, what's, what's convenient is the truth and what is inconvenient to them is a lie. So I want to say this condition that I'm talking about here wasn't terribly different uh, and it wasn't dissimilar to the morality in, in, in uh, Greek and Roman uh, culture. Because the Romans and the Greeks were always trying to figure out how to gain the favor of their gods. And morality changed all the time. And this leaked its way into the church. And so John is kind of addressing that here. So here's the, here's the deal. This is what's really important. Is God. God is the only one who gets to be the living measure of what sin is and what sin is not. Uh, in verse 7, John says something really peculiar. He says that we walk in the light as God is in the light. But watch this. He just said God is the light. So how can God, who is the light, walk in the light? It's oxymoronic. But what he's saying is this. What he means is this, is that God holds up who he is and everything that he does 
as a measure of his own character. Are you there? He's the only one of, so he's the holy one of Israel, and he is not wrong, and he can do no wrong. And that's the point of departure for us as Christians. But in our culture right now, everybody's clamoring for a piece of defining morality, right? Um, what is right and what is wrong? John is saying that God is the only one who does that. And the way we imbibe it is by receiving him and walking with him. It's a relational proposition. That doesn't mean we can't be wrong and walk with him. But what it means is that we begin to take on board the character of the living God the more that we give our lives to him and walk with him. So John is saying that God and only God, not psychology, not sociology, not politics, not empathy with the culture, not history, not media, not philosophy, not even biblical higher criticism does the trick. All those things have a certain place, but God is the arbiter in our lives of what sin is and what sin is not. And he makes it clear in our walk with him. And then on top of all that, he gives us this wonderful word, the word of God that we can apply our reason to and we can pray through. And when we do, we begin to take on the characteristics of that life. One of the dynamics that abides uh, ongoing sin in a Christian's life is my ability to, to usurp God's uh, define morality and substitute what I believe to be right and then call it God. <laughs> Remember they took the golden calf and they threw it in the oven and they brought it out and they worshiped the idol and they called it Yahweh. Most people miss the fact that they called it Yahweh, right? And uh, then if I continue in that deception, I begin to believe it, I begin to defend it, and, and to close myself off from any challenge, whether from the word of God or from a minister of the church or another believer or my wife or whatever. And it's the beginning, beginning of sinning against the Holy Spirit. So sustained self-deception rationalizes sin and with the excuse that even though we are sinning, we're just fine with God, okay? Um, I can't tell you the number of people I've challenged who were in adultery. <laughs> over, I mean, I've been doing this over 40 years, so this is what you run into in a, in a, in a, uh, a sexually defined culture. And... and I would say most of the time that I challenged them, I said, but what about your relationship with God? Almost always, almost always, the answer I get is, oh, I'm fine with God. And, and I say, it's just an interesting, it's, it's just interesting to me. And of course, you know, we go through the dance of how can you be fine with God if you're doing what you're doing and, and all of that. But anyway, they've redefined the morality according to what they consider that they need. Uh, I remember I was in, there's, there's a dump outside the city of Madrid. And when the first time I went there, I was with uh, Elliot Tepper, who's the apostle of Battelle. And we were going there because it's, it's, it is the place where the government will just allow anything to go on in terms of drug sales and usage and so forth, as long as it's kept out of the cities, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a place where, uh, almost anything goes. It's, it's actually a city. It's the city dump, but it's also a city. They, there are cardboard houses and streets and all these kinds of things, and everyone is, 
is drug addicted and hitting up. But in the meantime, people are coming in and out of the dump in order to buy their wares, buy heroin or whatever other drugs. And remember, uh, so we're going around and we're evangelizing uh, some of the people there. And a woman comes up and she had just gotten out of her car, which is a late model Mercedes. And uh, she was obviously upper middle class and she'd come to buy her heroin. And I'm standing there and I'm talking to her and I'm saying, look, uh, hon, you know, there is a place you can go to that's a rehab. You can get free of this addiction. This addiction doesn't have to take over and ruin your life. Now, while I'm talking to her, over here to, to my right, there's a, a, another woman who's not associated with the woman I'm talking to, who, who, who is injecting herself where, where her legs meet her torso, because they're the only veins left, with heroin. Uh, and there are needles all over the gr- ground. And over to my, to my left, there's somebody else who's injecting himself in his neck because he had just scored. And, and all of this is going on. And she looks at me deadpan. And she says, oh, I'm not a drug addict. And I just thought, see, that's it. You know, that's where, where, where all of these kinds of things go. Um, not ter- terribly long ago, there was a, a, quote, revival, end quote, um, uh, I won't even mention where it was it, because there are revivals everywhere, but especially back in those days. And I had a bad feeling about this. You know, I was looking at the shenanigans that were going on that were allegedly the power and the work of the Spirit. Now, I want to hasten to say that it, what was going on on stage, I was watching online, people were actually getting healed. I mean, there was an anointing. Something was happening that was legitimately the Holy Spirit that was consequent to the faith of the people who were there, but the individuals who were leading the revival, I just, I was grieved, you know. Okay, so anyway, I called out, I got to go to West Africa, and uh, I was in West Africa for about two weeks, and I come back, and I, I land in Paris, and I, I have a layover, so I thought I'll go back and see what's going on at the, quote, revival, end quote. And, and uh, there's this big red thing on the webpage, and it says, revival canceled. Well, what happened was is the worship leaders, that's the old story, worship leaders and one of the great leaders of the revival were, were having an affair all through the revival and there was drunkenness and all this kind of thing. And so, so the, the, the whole thing went down when it was exposed, they canceled the revival. Well, an individual who I know personally attempted to, was attempting before all this was exposed to, to try and speak into it, you know, uh, was completely repudiated. And, and a national leader said to him, because he wasn't famous, but said to him, How, who are you to challenge these people? Have you ever led a revival? That was what he said. So I'm thinking, so the measure of morality is whether or not you can lead a revival? Measure of morality is whether the Holy Spirit works through you or not? You know, that's the measure of this thing? And suddenly God ceases to be the measure of revival. And this is, this is p- particularly a, a difficult thing in our tribe of Christianity. And when I get to, uh, to heaven, if I can speak, <laughs> I'm going to ask Jesus, how come, how come you let these guys get away with that? You know? And he'll probably say, well, wait till you see what I let you get away with. Anyway, <laughs> John 3.19 says that we can actually come to the position where we love the darkness rather than light. I, I remember 
uh, evangelizing an old friend. And he was an old friend, a great guy, really nice guy who was, I mean, an alcoholic. I'm not talking about a drinking problem. I mean, this guy was an alcoholic. He was, you know, if you took him off, if you took him off alcohol, he had the DTs, the whole thing. And I, I just said to him, Leo, I said, Leo, you've got to stop this. It's killing you. You have hepatitis. You know what he said to me? He said, I know, Grub. He said, but I love it. Isn't that interesting? I just love it. And so coming into this year, I, I've been asking myself, what are the things that I love that God doesn't love? <laughs> you, you know, I've just been asking myself this. Um, here's the neat thing. This is so cool. The only and wonderful remedy for self-deception is confession, yeah, repentance, and Jesus, the sacrifice, who removes all our guilt and shame. Huh? Uh, in, in my own life, whenever I finally come to the place where I've come to the end of myself, and that happens about every six months, uh, I, I've had to begin to hate the darkness that I loved and admit that, okay, maybe it is sin. Yeah? And I found that repentance involves four dimensions. It involves sorrow, it involves confession, it involves faith to receive forgiveness, but it also involves change. Now, I said, well, why is it so hard for us to do that? I think the reason is, is that somehow we believe we have to change before we're sorry, repent, and receive forgiveness. I mean... Somehow we feel like the, the, the whole matter of change and transformation is our responsibility. And that's a lie too. But God really will immerse us in grace to help us deal with stuff if we'll just humble ourselves before him. You know? All right. We can pray for the grace to be sorry. We can pray for the grace to ask forgiveness, which leads to repentance and transformation. Usually, if I have to deal with something in my life, uh, one, of the, one of the key emotions that I go through is anger. You know, either anger because I like it and I don't want to not do it, that's one thing, or anger is because I can't figure out how to not do it, you know, use my mouth the wrong way or whatever it might be. One, one of the real tough things for me is that. But when I pray for sorrow, for godly sorrow, guess what? God shows up. It usually might take a little while, but suddenly I begin to grieve my own behavior. And, and I, praying for godly sorrow is something we can do, and God is so wonderful. One of the things that God, one question that God always, always, always answers is, Jesus, what's wrong with me? <laughs> but then he also tells me what's right with me, you know, those kinds of things. All right. So on a practical level, I'm going to be real quick here. I want to give like four or five obstacles to light. Is that okay? And I'll just run right through them, and then we'll invite you guys up, and we'll sing Amazing Grace. All right. The first thing that's an obstacle to light is willful ignorance. And willful ignorance is the excuse, this is verse 6, that I actually need this destructive habit at this time in my life. Um, and... Uh, you know, there can, it can be, listen, I'm not, I, it could be big stuff. I mean, I've dealt with a, a person who was a, 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 the wife of a very prominent figure uh, who, who was a kleptomaniac. I was, I was teasing about kleptomania 
And, and, and we worked through that, and she's, she got freed of it. But, but the point is, that's rather dramatic, right? It could be sugar. <laughs> you know, it could be, it could be uh, resentment. It could, I mean, there's all kinds of things that God can deal with, unless you're perfect. And, and if you're perfect, well, heck, you, you can preach tonight, you know. It's that kind of thing. So there's this willful ignorance, which is an excuse that, hey, I really need to do this, uh, this thing because it's, I need it in my life at this time. That's, I've run into that myself and others a zillion times. The, uh, the second one is from verse 7. It's the lack of authentic intimacy with another who challenges me. And for, for you people who are married out there, this includes your spouses especially. Uh, uh, somehow I managed to marry a woman uh, who does not hesitate to uh, point out, not my flaws, but point, but point out behaviors that are destructive in my life. And, and I can't intimidate her out of them. <laughs> I mean, she will not be schmutzed. And so, so we got to go and pray. As a matter of fact, last night, not last night, the night before last, she did that. We were praying. Anyway, so uh, authentic intimacy with another who can challenge me. Who are the people in our lives that can challenge? Every time I deal with a, a leader who's in trouble morally or something like that, there is no authority in his or her life. And it, it's just such a, a basic biblical principle. And I wonder, how, how do you get like that? Now, uh, Tricia isn't the only authority in my life. The elders are authority. And, and our elders have challenged me. And, and, um, and I wish they were wrong, but they weren't. <laughs> so, so those kinds of things. Uh, here's a biggie. Avoidance of intimacy with God. Uh, an avid prayer life. A submitted prayer life. A, a, a coming before God in humility on a daily basis. That whole psalm that we were talking about before, you know, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me to life everlasting. Uh, search my heart, O oh God. Uh, th- those kinds of prayers uh, are, God answers them, but he also answers them with the grace to be able to see ourselves transformed. And, and I don't know uh, how many, um, how many counseling sessions that I've been through, where one of my mantra prayers is, how often do you pray? What's your prayer life like? How deep is your prayer life? Um, especially with spouses, if it's, uh, the two of you aren't getting along together, how deeply do you seek God together with one another? Is that a, 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 an intricate part of the way that you love one another, is to love God together, even to worship together at times? Um, and usually... If there's problems in the, in the marriage, the answer is, uh, not so much. Uh, and so that's, that's a challenging thing. Oh, here's a biggie. Avoidance of community worship or communal worship. I can almost, as a pastor, I can tell when someone's kind of in trouble because for years they've been sitting right there and then they sit over there and then they sit over there and then they sit over there and then they're over by the door and they're gone. <laughs> Because there's nothing worse than being in worship when you know that God's dealing with iniquity in your life. It's, really, it's a tough thing. And it's interesting because 
Uh, it, you know, people say, oh, I can go to the Grand Canyon and worship God. Sure you can. But it's not the same as being with God's people. It's not the same as, as being. There's a different anointing of the Holy Spirit where all the members are there, and to each member is given an anointing for the common good. Nothing, can, nothing is better than that, and it exists wherever, wherever Christians are. Okay? Uh, pride's another one. That's from verse 8. Uh, pride is my, my refusal to admit that I could be in a particular sin. <laughs> um, you say to yourself, that's not sin because I'm the one who's doing it. <laughs> These are the ones that, uh, that our spouses like to point out. Um, uh, was <laughs> I came home after seven years of marriage, and Tricia said, will you please sit down? And I said, yeah. I thought, okay, what did I do now? Anyway, so I sat down, and she said, I really think I don't love you anymore. And I said, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and we talked about that. We we got some counseling, and it was it was cool. And she really did love me, but she said, "How could you say that to me when I told you something so stark?" And I said, "Because I couldn't imagine anybody not loving me." You know? <laughs> That's pride. <laughs> it's not sin because I'm doing it anyway. All right. <laughs> uh, where are we here? Uh, unwillingness to confess sin to another if I need to. Um, there are certain sins. James says, confess your sins one to another. You can always come to God and confess sins, but sometimes to break the power of a sin, it has to be brought into the light. And you need to say, look, here's what I've been up to. And, uh, uh, and something breaks when you do that. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, I've discovered that in my own life in, in different kinds of ways. Uh, but t- see, here's the thing. It's bringing your sin into the light and bringing your sin under authority. Or being available to authority to have your sin addressed, okay? And then lastly, unwillingness to submit or even recognize spiritual authority. I don't know anywhere. It's interesting. In our circle, charismatic circles, everybody wants to preach on Matthew 16, you know, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And whatsoever things you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever things you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And that's all true, and that's true for Peter, and it's true for every believer. But you never hear, there's only two places in all of the Gospels where Jesus utters the word church. That's in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And they're bookend pieces, right? So, so, uh, so in Matthew 18, it's a little different. And nobody ever preaches on Matthew 18. Because in Matthew 18, it says, well, if your brother or sister sin, go to your brother and sister or sister and point out his sin between you and, and them. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. Or take a couple witnesses, and if he hears them, you've won your brother. He says, and if he hears them not, then bring them before the church which tends to mean that the church has a certain moral and ethical authority in people's lives. But we don't want to preach about that because you end up in the morning call the next day. Uh, uh, and, I, you know, I find that fascinating uh, because that's the bookend piece. To, and here's the interesting thing. 
after Jesus says that about church, where he mentions the word church, you know what he says? He says to the disciples together as the church, he says, and whatsoever you will bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Which I find kind of fascinating. The only difference between over in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. Matthew 16, the you is singular. And in Matthew 18, the you is plural. You see, there's a little church right here, right here tonight. And, and we have authority to bind and loose stuff. And it ain't just devil stuff. It's moral stuff as well which I find fascinating. And this is the, the kind of ethos that John, the apostle, is operating out of when he says, look, little children, I'm writing these things to you because I love you. And he says, and I've seen how Jesus walked. Here's some ifs for your lives. Now let me throw at you this salvo of ifs. And if you do these things, your life is going to become healthy and wealthy and wise and the things of God and the increase of the kingdom. So, to wrap this all up, if you want to come up and we can sing Amazing Grace, uh, to wrap this all up, church, most of you are watching from your, uh, from your living rooms or hopefully uh, wherever your, your, uh, your TV or your computers are, your devices are. Please, as we go into 2022... Will you take to your heart, with me, uh, this, this challenge from the epistle of St. John to the church at large? This is the year we can clean up our acts. Now, will any of us walk out of this perfected? Probably not. But a perfection's in Jesus anyway. But there are some key things that can release goodness, increase the kingdom, fulfillment, all those kinds of things in our lives. I believe a prophetic word is on us, an unction is on us this year to really deal with some stuff that's going to release us and release this church. So I'm not going to go through uh, a prayer. Uh, like if you were all here, I probably wouldn't have everybody stand and, you know, claim, well, I got a sin I got to deal with. No, what, what I want us to do is either next week or the week after, we're going to be taking communion together. Will you do this for me as, as uh, one of your pastors? Will you just begin in your devotional life, in your contempl contemplation life, contemplative life, to begin to ask God, what has he got his finger on 2022? Because there's grace for it. There's real grace for it. And I want you to begin to deal with it. Uh, if you need to deal with somebody else, go to them. If you need to, to, to uh, pray with someone, go to them. Uh, or if you just need to deal with God, go to him and begin to deal with this thing with the object in mind that when we take Eucharist, we have communion together in a week or two, that we're going to be cleaned from this thing. That we will have made progress in removing this obstacle from our lives. Because great is the grace of God for us this year at NC4. God bless you all. And let's uh, we're going to sing. You can join us at home or uh, go slurp on some coffee. But take what I said to heart. <laughs> Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. 
If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.